So today is December 25th, and it's a special day because it is Sunday, the Lord's Day. Every Sunday, Christians gather for, for corporate worship. Cor corporate worship involves a local body of believers, believers in Christ, who come together to express their worship to the one God who we believe in. And we believe that this one God is eternally three persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. So why Sunday? Well, we read in Acts 20, I think it's verse 27, we read that the early church, they met on the Lord's Day, which was Sunday. So why Sunday? Because that's the day that Christ rose from the dead. He rose from the dead in victory. Over, over death, over sin, over Satan, and also fulfilling so many promises in the Old Testament. That happened on Sunday, and so what were the disciples doing, what were the early believers doing on Sunday? They were breaking bread. They were celebrating, from what it looks like, every Sunday, the Lord's table, communion. And so, and what the communion celebrates, it celebrates how uh, Christ has inaugurated his new covenant. He has created his church by his death on the cross. He has saved us from his sins. So what do we do? We're about on Sunday mornings, we're about worshiping God um, through song, through praise music, through our interactions with one another as we gather corporately. And we're also about preaching God's word. The disciples, they also, um, the, the early church, they prayed when they met, and they also were reading the word and preaching the word. So this is what we do on Sunday, and that is why we are here this morning. We worship Jesus because of who he is, what he has done for us. We worship, we gather this morning in response to the salvation that Christ accomplished on the cross. Well, today is... December 25th, which means that it's also a holiday known as Christmas. Now, this one word Christmas has a lot of different meanings to a lot of different people. From what I understand, the word itself has its origin. The word Christmas itself has its origin in the Roman Catholic Church, where they combine the word Christ and Mass. Mass is a Roman Catholic a tradition that they do, that they believe that when they meet for Mass, they believe that Christ is re-crucified over and over and over and over again, which is blasphemy. We read in Hebrews and all throughout Scripture that Christ died, he suffered once for sins. The Roman Catholic Mass denies that. And it's part of a whole other discussion, um, which it is completely against the gospel, against God's word, and true believers have always rejected that teaching from the Roman Catholic Church. So that, that, that's what Christmas means to, to some people. But what does Christmas mean for America as we look around? Well, if you think about it, and, and again, this one word has different meanings for different people, and that's what I'm expounding on right now. I'm not saying that, that anyone holds to these things in this room, Lord willing. But for America, Americans typically and more than often is the case that 
Christmas is seen as a tradition that has just been, um, that just has been filled with sinful traditions. I mean, you've got to think about it too. We, there's the character known as Santa Claus. There's a song, you know, uh, that he knows when you're sleeping. He knows when you're, aw- when you're awake. Besides being creepy, we need to actually think about what that song is claiming for this person named Santa. There was a theological word for when someone knows everything that you do. It's called omniscience. So there, there is this American, you know, I'm not sure exactly where this whole thing of Santa came from, from uh, this view, but there's a song singing praise songs about the omniscient Santa Claus, right? So again, I'm not claiming this is your view here. I'm, I, let's just look at this word from a perspective and I'm bringing up all this background information because the message I'm bringing today is that we are here to worship God. We are here to worship God. And on a side note, I think probably the worst thing, second the worst thing about Santa Claus, the first thing is that there's a song that he's omniscient. The second the worst thing is that Santa Claus was actually a real historical person who was at the Council of Nicaea and defended, defended the deity of Christ against a man named Arius. It's actually a hilarious story. If you go and you read it in church history, um, Saint Nicholas, I like to call him Pastor Nicholas, when he heard Arius' claims that there was a time that Christ was not, Santa Claus got up in anger, and I'm not, not condoning this, and he punched Arius in the face at the Council of Nicaea. So that's, pro- that's probably my favorite Santa Claus story, and it happens to be the real one. Um, he's dead with the Lord now in heaven, uh, Pastor Nicholas, as I like to call him. But this time of the year, there's all this fuzziness for this, this season called Christmas. And just simply what I like to do is draw us in to a passage in the Bible in Matthew 2, the story of the Magi that's often used at Christmas time. But here's what I want us to see. The story of the Magi, the purpose of it, written by Matthew, is to bring us to a place of true worship to Jesus Christ. Is that is actually the story of the Magi is all about true worship of Jesus Christ. So that's the title of the message this morning, learning about worship from the Magi in Matthew, in Matthew 2. And I'm doing this because we need a fresh reminder of what it means to worship Christ, whether it be on a Sunday morning, a holiday like Christmas, or during the entirety of our lives. We need to know what it means to worship Jesus as the true king. And we find this in Matthew 2, 1 through 12. And when Matthew wrote this portion of the gospel, he did not write it to fill, to fill, to make us all, give us all warm fuzzies, to fill our hearts of the readers um, with just comfort. Matthew wrote this for a different reason. Matthew wrote this to fill the hearts of the readers with three things. Fear of who Jesus is. Obedience because of who Jesus is. Three, surrender to Christ because of who Jesus is. That's going to be the 
outline this morning and simply put, Matthew teaches about the lordship of Christ. And our response to Christ, that he is Lord, it begins at the moment that God opens our eyes to believe in him. Believing in the lordship of Christ is not something that happens later in your life after it's saved, after you're saved. It happens at the moment God opens your eyes. So that's what we're going to see this morning is understanding the lordship of Christ in our worship. And again, just to give kind of an outline this morning, is that Matthew is going to trace the journey of the Magi in such a way that teaches us three lessons of true worship. And again, those three points are um, that we acknowledge acknowledge the lordship of Christ. That's when I was talking about fear earlier. When we acknowledge the lordship of Christ, we have a proper fear of who Christ is. Secondly, is that we'll have this loving obedience to Christ because he is Lord. And third, we will surrender what is most precious and dear to us because he is Lord. With that, I'm going to read the text, Matthew chapter 2, 1 through 12. And if you would please stand with me as we read God's word this morning. If you are visiting here and you are new, we, are, uh, we don't stand for the reading of the word just for some tradition. We stand for the reading of the word because we understand and believe at this church that we are subject to God's word. And so we stand in respect for the reading of his word. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him, and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel." Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word, that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen, when it rose, went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. You may have a seat. Before we look at the journey of the Magi, 
we need to understand where we are in the context of the book of Matthew. Uh, Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, is the third of four stories that open up the gospel that bring attention to how Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies, of Old Testament promises that God would send a king, God would send his son to save his people. And so that's what the first uh, two to three chapters, the first two to three chapters of Matthew does, excuse me, the first two chapters, and there's four stories. Um, this is the third story. The first story, if you can call it that, is a genealogy. It's, it's a story that traces a genealogy, chases the genealogy from a major character named Abraham in the Old Testament to a major character named David in the Old Testament. And the reason why Matthew gives this genealogy is because he's using a genealogy because that is how the book of Genesis wrote to talk about the Messiah. You might be saying, well, what do you mean by that? Well, in the book of Genesis, there's lots of genealogies there. And at times, if you do your Bible reading plan, that's usually where it gets hard right at the beginning. All these genealogies. Right? So that's why some Bible plans actually don't start off in Genesis. That's my theory anyways. So there's all these genealogies. And we're thinking, what's the big deals? They're just names. They're not just names. Here's what we have in the book of Genesis. We have in chapter 1, God creates the heavens and the earth and it's perfect. It's there to glorify him. In Genesis chapter 2, we have this story of Adam and Eve in the garden. God gave them everything that they needed to glorify him. We read in Genesis chapter 3 that Adam sinned, um, Adam and Eve sinned, and that God pronounced a curse on mankind. That mankind was now estranged from God, removed from his presence. But we read about God in his grace gave a promise. He gave a promise that was also a curse on the serpent who was doing Satan's work. And the promise is the promise of our salvation. And the promise was to Eve that, um, that one of her offspring, a male offspring, would crush the head of the serpent. So the question you would have as you're reading it is like, okay, who is this offspring? That's the purpose of genealogies in Genesis. It wants to trace the promised line of the Messiah. And so we read at the end of Genesis, in Genesis chapter 49, which we'll be going to a few times this morning. I'll mention it briefly now, but in Genesis chapter 49, verses 8 through 12, also verse 1, we read God's plan for uh, the last days. That's where we get the word eschatos and eschatology from. It's from that verse in Genesis 49, verses 8 through 12. And in the last days... God's plan to fulfill all of his promises, he talks about how there's going to be a scepter who comes from Judah. The whole book of Genesis is to get us to the spot where we understand the promised king comes from the tribe of Judah. That's why in the book of Revelation, the apostle John, when he sees Christ in heaven glorified with his eyes of a flame of fire with, on his eyes and majestic, the apostle John calls him the lion of the tribe of Judah. So Genesis is already established from the very beginning. 
The first verse, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 49, the end of Genesis, in the last days. So Genesis gives us the beginning and the end. And the beginning and the end is all about God's promised Messiah. It's all about God's promised Messiah. And so that's what the first part of Matthew 1 does. The next part, we have the birth announcement of Jesus from the angel. And there's a connection to Isaiah 7, 14 where the prophet Isaiah prophesied that one day the virgin, a virgin would conceive and bear a son, a miracle. And his son would be called Emmanuel, God with us. And so the second story of Matthew, we have Matthew connecting that promise to what happened in Jesus' birth. Now this brings us this morning to the third story in Matthew. Matthew has already established that Jesus is the promised king foretold of in the Old Testament. Now Matthew wants to show us what our response is, our response to this king. This is a call of true, genuine worship to Christ. If you look at verse 1, we see that Matthew draws our attention to the theme of kingship. We see that because he says, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king. So at the beginning of this story, Matthew begins to bring out kind of this, kind of this issue going on, um, kind of a conflict that's happening. And the conflict has to do with kingship. Every conflict that we go through in our life has to do with kingship. It has to do with Christ is the king, whether we like it or not, and how will we react? How will we respond to the fact that Christ is the Lord? Every issue in our life can be boiled down to that. And there was an issue here because when Jesus was born in Bethlehem, there was another king in Israel, except he was not the true promised king. He actually had no right to be on the throne whatsoever. He was sitting on David's throne in Jerusalem. This guy named Herod, he's also known as Herod the Great, uh, or more accurately, Herod the Terrible. Um, he saw himself as great. Um, and so he was not, he did not have the right lineage to be king. Only someone descended from Judah. Um, Herod's lineage went to, um, from the land of Edom all the way back to Esau in the Old Testament. He had no right to be king whatsoever, but the political situation of the day, his father, Antipater, was able to basically help him have this position where he was functioning as king of the Jews, and he was doing that um, for Caesar Augustus. He was doing that for Caesar Augustus. So in so many ways, this is the wrong king to be there. And during that time, during those days, the right king was born. And so that's kind of the, the background information that Matthew is giving us for the story. He wants us to think in, in terms of the theme of kingship. And this tension is created by the collision of these, of these two characters. First character is Herod, the false king. 
Second character is Christ, the true king. And what we're going to see next as we move into verses 2 to 4 is that we're going to see what, look, what true worship looks like. The Magi are going to come in. We're going to cover them in just a moment. And we're going to see the Magi respond to the news of the true king in worship. And we're also given something else to help us understand true worship. What, we're, what we will see is a picture of false worship, and that's Herod. So in verses 2 to 4, we see the Magi acknowledge the lordship of Christ, while Herod and Jerusalem reject the news of Christ. They reject the lordship of Christ. And before we look at verses 2 to 4, I just want to quickly, briefly cover the Magi. Some Bible translations will say wise men. Um, the Greek is actually the word uh, magus. That's where the word magi come from because uh, it sounds like it. So that's how they translated it. And so who were these magi? Well, there's things we know about them. There's things that we don't know about them. Uh, we know that they were Gentiles. They were not from the land of Israel. Um, we do not know how many of them were here in this story. It says plural, so we know there are more than one. Um, and so the tradition that there was three magi um, comes from the end of the story where they bring three gifts. So the thoughts are, oh, one magi for each gift. That's possible. Um, it's, it's very possible. So, but we do know that they were magi. They were from the east. They were not from Israel. And they like to look at the stars. And what that exactly looked like with um, astrology and astronomy and all of that, there's speculation. There was lots of different kinds of magi. But here's where we, what we know. They came from a Gentile background, from a Gentile land that denied the Lord, and that was very pagan. And as also, what people have also seen, the commentaries say, is that in the area they came from, there was some Jewish influence. So there was areas where they would have had the Old Testament. And if you read commentaries, you get some interesting different theories, right? But what I like to focus on this, this morning is what we actually have. We have these magi who like to look at the stars, like to look at the sky, came from a pagan land. They also had access to the Old Testament. And it is that point I want to draw our attention to. Because when they saw the star in the sky there is an Old Testament passage that connects a prophecy of a star to the promised Messiah. Um, so for a moment, if you would turn to Numbers chapter 24, starting in verse 17. So we covered the Magi. Now I want to talk about the star. In, the nativ in this nativity story, in this story of the Magi, there is a star that they see, and for some reason, it leads them to Jerusalem to ask about the Messiah. And there are different uh, theories for what this star could have been. Um, I watched a movie last night with my family called The Nativity Story. Um, in the nativity story, um, you have, they have three magi from a southern country, and they have all their telescopes out, and there's, you know, there's three planets that are like about to touch each other and creates a brilliant star. At, well, at this point in history, uh, when Christ was born, there was an aligning of the planets. Some people suppose it was a supernova. 
that happened, that there was a supernova around that time that was really bright. Um, and so there's these different astronomical kind of guesses at what this star was in Matthew 2. Um, and so what we can say is that the astronomical kind of ideas don't work perfectly because as we're reading Matthew 2, when we get back to it, what we see is that the star is leading them. It's leading them, and eventually what we'll see, to a house, and then it even shines down on the exact house where they're supposed to go. And in the movie last night, there was the, the three planets that connected, and it got really bright, and it shot down. It's like Star Trek, you know, light, you know laser beam at the house, you know. I mean, that, that, that's just kind of, you know, Hollywood or, or whatever. It's fanciful. The Bible doesn't say, the Bible says a star shone on the house, but the idea of it shooting a laser beam, that's a little, little far-fetched if you ask me. So the question remains, the astronomical ideas have other issues. The star is moving in a pattern where it's going west at one point and it's going south at another point. You know, that's not how stars travel. Could God have taken the star and made it go west and south and shot a laser beam down at it? Yeah, God could have done that. The Bible doesn't give us those exact details. But what a lot of commentators point out is a different connection um, than the astronomical one. Whatever the star was in the sky, there are things that commentaries are noting. One, it wasn't visible to everybody. It was only visible to the Magi. If it was visible to everybody, Harry could have sent out his spies to go to the star and take care of the business himself. So what we see is how the Lord often does when it comes to the Lord leading people to Christ, the Lord had chosen only, it seems, to reveal it to the Magi. And here's another thing that we see is that the Bible is very clear about there is a star, promise of a star to lead to the Messiah. And that's in Numbers 24, verse 17, which says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of of Sheph. So what commentators, what I've seen in a lot of commentators, which, um, and I, I would agree with, is that the idea of a star here, it was something brilliant in the sky. Most likely it was, it could have been an angel. In the Old Testament, angels are a few times called stars. In the book of Revelation, angels are called stars. Also in those four introductory stories of Matthew I was talking about, each of them, there is an angel who appears. In Matthew 2, it's the same word. Instead of an angel appearing, it's a star appearing. So it's very possible the Magi, from their perspective, there's this bright thing in the sky, and they call it a star. Also could have been an angel. But here's the most important thing I want us to bring our attention to, is that because we know Matthew 2 connects to 2417 in Numbers, that Matthew wants to draw our attention to what does Numbers 2417 tell us about the Messiah? What does the star in Numbers 2417 tell us about the Messiah? Well, I'll summarize it like this. The star in Numbers 2417 
tells us that the Messiah is going to be the king and he has complete authority. That's what the star points us to. Um, it says, a star shall come out of Jacob and a scepter. This language of scepter is the language of what a king wields when he rules. The king would use this scepter to slam it on the ground to make decisions. The king would use this scepter when he went out in battle and war. The scepter represents the complete authority of the king. This we're referring to here to the lordship of Christ. Is that Christ demands obedience. Christ demands obedience and Christ acts in a certain way when people rebel against him. Let's look back down to Numbers 24:17. A star shall come out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. So the question is, what will he do with his scepter? What will he do with his reign? It says, it shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. These two peoples, Moab and Sheth, were enemies to God. Even the name Sheth in Hebrew um, refers to disobedience or rebellion. These were people who were against God. What is this Messiah going to come and do one day? He's going to defeat all the usurpers, all of those who were rebellious against them, against him, everyone. Why did the Magi go through this long journey? It would have been um, four or five months, if not more. Why would they spend all that money? It's expensive to travel back then. Why would they sacrifice all of their time? Why would they disobey Herod's orders? We'll see later in the story. Because they knew who Jesus was. They knew that he disciplines and that he goes after in judgment his enemies. Magi went because they had this holy fear of Christ. They understood who he is. This is the first part of worship is that when we read our Bible and we study our Bible, like the Magi would have done in Numbers 24, 17, here's something we realize, is that Christ is a king who judges. He has authority and he will hold every single person in this room accountable. And once we acknowledge that and we live our life in light that he is king and judge, that's called worship. The first aspect of worship. Now, what we also see in verses three to four, we see an example of false worship. So, if you would turn back to Matthew chapter two, in verses three and four, we read When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. Here's what I want to draw our attention to, is the response of Herod to the news of Christ. He was troubled. He was afraid. He, his fear was different than the fear of the Magi. The fear of the Magi was fear 
and respect for Christ that move them to respond to come and find Christ, to find where he was so they could worship him and give him gifts. The respond of Herod was fear because such a king would take from him what was most valuable to him. And so this, we'll see that Herod is a false worshiper. He's assembling the chief priests and scribes. They were experts in the Old Testament. And so he was finding them where the Christ was to be born. He wasn't finding them for the same reason the Magi were. And that's such a picture of false worship. Because there are so many people in this world who want to find Jesus, but not for the right reasons. For selfish motivations. So the Bible shows us the right way to understand Jesus. And that's what we're seeing here. It starts with our understanding of who he is and a holy fear of who he is. This brings us to our second point. Once, once we know who Christ is, once we acknowledge who he is, that he is Lord, that he has authority, and that we're accountable to him, our response is also one of obedience to him. So in verses 5 through 8, we see that the lordship of Christ is put on display through a prophecy of the shepherding role, the shepherding role of the Messiah. So in verses 5 through 8, Herod's asking these experts in the Old Testament law, where is the Christ? And their answer is that they go to a passage in the Old Testament. Micah chapter 5, verse 2. Um, and just as a quick note, some people wonder about this. When the scribes are quoting Micah 5, 2, it actually doesn't match what's in the Old Testament. And so I just thought it'd be helpful just to note that what the scribes are doing is that they're reading a text probably from the Hebrew to Herod, who probably doesn't know Hebrew, and they're explaining it to him. So if you're ever cross-referencing Micah 5.2 um, with Matthew chapter 2, verse 5, and you're like, whoa, what's going on? There's differences here. Well, what we see is that the scribes are explaining everything that Micah 5 is saying, but they're uh, basically just making up for the difference in the language. They're just explaining, they're just, you know, paraphrasing it, you know. Uh, so that's what's happening there too. Now here is what Micah 5 focuses on is that one, Herod wanted to know the place the Messiah was to be born. And so the scribes answer that question, but they keep reading the verse. Remember, all of Jerusalem was troubled by the news of the Messiah. This would have included the, uh, the scribes here and the chief priests. And so they don't only give Herod the location, but they give Herod a heads up. Hey, this Messiah is going to do something else. So as we're reading the text, they also point out that from Bethlehem will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So King, King Herod, he liked being the boss. He liked telling people what to do. He liked building lots of things to bring himself glory. And so, the, and so these scribes are saying, oh, you know, the, this Christ who's going to come, he's going to tell the people what to do. So he's giving the, they're giving him extra information. 
So what, what was bad news for Herod is good news for us. Christ is not just this king who sits in a far, far away place, you know, and says, obey me. He shepherds. He shepherds us. This idea of shepherding is this language of caring, caring for his flock. And so this is a second part of our relationship to Christ with him as Lord. He is the authority and he also cares for us. And we see that in the life of Christ. We see how he gently shepherded his disciples who were knuckleheads at many times, right? That gives us hope because every single one of us are knuckleheads at many times, right? And so our relationship to Christ is not one where we just obey everything he says for the sake of it. Our relationship to Christ is also one out of obedience to Christ that comes from a heart that loves Christ. Why does Christ shepherd his people? Because he loves them. So we respond back to Christ in loving obedience. Uh, I used to teach a Christian high school, a Christian high school in Alaska. And at that school, it was really, it was really amazing because my two years of teaching there, I think I saw writing on a bathroom stall one time. So I went to public school in Los Angeles, and I, I, I won't say what I saw on the walls <laughs> there, but my point is these kids were very well behaved, very well behaved, and that made my job harder as a Bible teacher because my concern was is that they would understand the relationship with God in terms of just their obedience to God. That's not what the Bible says, is that we, that we obey God out of a heart that loves God. Um, out of the whole Bible, the book of Deuteronomy mentions the idea of heart and love the most. And we would normally think of Deuteronomy as the book of the law, right? Which it is. But the purpose of the law was never remote obedience. It was, just, was never robotic obedience. It was obedience from a heart that loves God. And that is what we're seeing in the story of the Magi. The Magi came not to fill out, you know, kind of a bucket list thing, but they came out of love for Christ. And so that brings us to our third point. Well, actually, before we get to our third point, um, we again, we look at Herod and we see his response. If you look down at verse seven, and this just takes quick to do, Herod's response to hearing that there's another king out there is that he tries bossing around the Magi. From the very, it says Herod summoned. That language of summoned is I'm the boss. You're going to do what I'm telling you to do. And we'll see in verse 7 and 8, he actually gives them three commands. So Herod's response to hearing how Christ is the one who tells his people what to do is like, no, I'm going to tell people what to do. What is Herod doing here? He's trying to hold on to what is precious to him. He's trying to hold on to what does not belong to him. He's trying to hold on to what God is, is sovereignly taking away from him. And that is his response to the news of Christ. This brings us to our third point of true worship is that it surrenders to the lordship of Christ. 
and that goes from verses 9 through 12. And here's just, I'm just going to summarize what we have here, is that the Magi are brought by God to Christ. Herod tells them the go, gives them the command. So they start going in the direction toward Bethlehem, but they need to know specifically where the baby is. And so God brings back the star and has it somehow miraculously shine down lights on the house so they know exactly where to go. Um, and we also see in this is that the Magi reject the authority of Herod. Look down at verse 9. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy and going into the house. Let's, let's stop there for a moment. Herod's commands was when they find a child, when they know where the child would be to come back and report to him. And they totally dismiss him. They totally disobey him. They totally reject his authority, again, because they understood that that child had more authority than he did because that child is God. And what and the one last thing I want to draw our attention to is the gifts the Magi brought. Um, these gifts, the gold, frankincense, and myrrh were common gifts given to kings and royalty. Um, and so again, we don't know how many Magi there were. We know there were three gifts. But here is what's important to think about them with these gifts is that the Magi had spent a lot of time, a lot of resources, a lot, of energy, a lot of energy, experience a lot of risk, and they have these gifts that pretty much financial things, they represent um, tangible things, they represent what is dear to us, right? And it's not wrong to have, to have things that are dear to us, but it's wrong to hold on to things that are dear to us if it gets in the way of our worship to Christ, and that's what we see in the Magi here. The third part of true worship is that we surrender what is most precious to us, whether it be finances, money, time, respect. Um, doesn't matter what it is. Is that we have nothing that we hold that we are not ready to give to Christ. And that's what we see with the Magi, is that the gifts they gave hurt them financially, but it didn't hurt them spiritually. It didn't hurt them spiritually because they know the one they were giving it to deserved that plus more. And here's another thing we learned from this. They gave the gifts to Christ because they valued him and because they understood he owned it. Christ owns everything. It all belongs to him. So they were giving out of the joy of their heart which is also what we see in the New Testament tells us to do. The New Testament does not give believers a, a 10% or, or whatever. It's out of the joy of our hearts. It's, about, it's from that heart that loves God. When we sacrifice to him financially, time, when we serve in church, time to make sure that we raise our children in the ways of the Lord. So this was the third lesson that we learned about true worship. And in closing today, I want to address two types of people that are probably here. 
maybe three types of people. There are those who love Christ already. There are those who believe in Christ, have genuine faith. And what we see in this passage is that we are further encouraged to learn more about Christ and have deeper affections for Christ and also to examine in our lives, is there anything that I'm holding back that God wants and I'm not giving him? The second group of people potentially are people who maybe they fit the category of Herod. Maybe they are holding on to what they love dear the most. And so, and maybe this group of people needs to repent. Maybe there are some of those that are here. Maybe there are some friends that you have that are like this and family members who call themselves Christians, but as you examine their lives, they're holding on dear, holding on to things that are most dear to them. And there's a third group of people. Maybe you're here today and you're visiting because it's Christmas. Maybe you don't know Jesus. Maybe you've never heard the gospel before. What I would like you to hear today is that Christ is God and he demands everything from you. He demands your thoughts. He demands your affections. He demands you to surrender your entire life to him because he is God and he's a loving and he's a good God. He is merciful, filled with grace, so merciful, so loving that he died on the cross. And on that cross, it was more than just the pain of having nails in his hands. It was more than the pain of being pierced. On that cross, what Christ experienced was taking on himself the full wrath and anger of God for the sins of his people. So this means that that's how Christ accomplished salvation. It was two, over 2,000 years ago on the cross, the salvation, the thing that you need to be saved from the most is God, God's wrath. And Christ took that wrath. And for those who believe in him, he gives forgiveness. He saves. He gives his Holy Spirit to regenerate you, to give you a new life to regenerate your minds so that you think right thoughts and regenerate your affections so you have right affections toward God and others. And he gives you the ability to actually surrender what is most precious to you, to Christ, because he deserves it. That is worship. If you do not believe in Christ, I plead with you to worship him, to put your faith in Christ today, now, because tomorrow is not promised to anyone in this room. With that, let's bow our heads and end. Father God in heaven, Lord, you are good, Lord. Um, you are good, you are holy, you are worthy, and you are mighty, Lord. We thank you for Christ. Um, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word clearly tells us that what your son did to save us. And I pray, Lord, for every single person here, that every single one of us would go forth worshiping your son today, tomorrow, until the day you bring us home. Pray this in your son's name. Amen.